If you're a pop culture junkie who loves TV, film, music, comedy, and other really important stuff, then you've come to the right place. Get ready and settle in for Classic Conversations, the best pop culture interviews in the world. That's right, we circled the globe so you don't have to. If you're ready to be the king of the water cooler, then you're ready for Classic Conversations with your host, Jeff Dwoskin. All right, Laura, thank you so much for that amazing introduction. You get the show going each and every time, and this was no exception. Welcome, everybody, to episode 166 of Classic Conversations. As always, I am your host, Jeff Dwoskin. Welcome to an amazingly classic conversation. We're going back to the 1800s. We're going to a little house on a prairie. That's right. Karen Grassley's here. Ma, Caroline Ingalls from Little House on the Prairie. We're talking all about her career, Little House, Love Boat, and of course, her memoir, Bright Lights, Prairie Dust. So much greatness coming up. Light your candles, harvest the wheat, prepare your pies, because we're going all in on Little House. My conversation with Karen Grassley is coming up in just a few seconds. In these precious seconds, I want to remind everyone to check out episode 164 with another legend, Loretta Switz. That's right, Hot Lips from MASH. Amazing conversation. Also, episode 165 was a bonus episode of the podcast, celebrating segments from Crossing the Streams. Check that out. Check us out on YouTube, all that goodness. But in the meantime, grab a couple pennies, head on over to the general store. Let's buy a book. Let's buy a pound of flour. I can smell the pies baking right now. Can only mean one thing. The Caroline Ingalls Karen Grassley interview is coming up right now. Enjoy. All right, everyone, I'm excited to introduce you to my next guest, actress, author, loved her as Ma on one of the most beloved TV series of all time, Little House on the Prairie, recently turned author with her memoir, Bright Lights, Prairie Dust. Welcome to the show, Karen Grassley. Karen. Thank you. Karen, so awesome to have you on the show. Thank you. Great to be here. Thanks for asking me. Oh, I, I, I'm honored. I'm really honored. I I want to talk all about your book, but before we get into your book, I want to talk about one thing that I love that you did that's not in the book, and that was your episode of The Love Boat. Oh, thank you. I'm glad you saw that. I saw, I just, I was uh, Googling, and I saw a super cut of where they just put all your stuff together. So you were with uh, Fred Willard and Joe Namath, and that was a hilarious storyline. It was, how fun was it to be with Joe Namath and Fred Willard? It was so, so fun. First of all, because I was so happy to get out of my prairie clothes and into modern clothes and wear my own haircut. It just was like so freeing to be there. And then I did a lot of comedy before Little House. So it was so fun for me then to be able to do that and the joy that comes with, you know, acting like you don't know what's happening, but you really do and stuff like that. It's fun. So you love then just the idea of being able to break away from Little House for a second and kind of be a much different character. Yeah. And then I was not a huge sports fan, so I didn't appreciate how famous and talented Joe was, really. And he was very shy on the set because he wasn't an actor, you know, and he was being given this opportunity, but he was very insecure. So I was very thrilled to meet him and flirt around with him, you know. And then I thought the way he did the character turned out so cute, didn't you? Yeah, it was hilarious. The, the storyline was Fred and Joe are the last two guys, and they had this like money going. It's like worth $50,000. And Joe Namath offers you 10000 to marry Fred Willard so he can get all the money or the rest of the money. And then you turn it on and you end up marrying Joe Namath's character. <laughs> And it was like a bet that these guys had from college or something where whoever could hold out the longest staying single 
would win the pot. And so Joe wanted to win it. And he was trying to get me to marry Fred for that reason. But I was crazy about Joe. And why wouldn't you be? It was so fun. So you chose the athlete over the funny guy. That hurts me. <laughs> I know. <laughs> oh, man. It wouldn't be that way in real life. <laughs> was Fred Willard hilarious on the set? Oh, it was delightful. Delightful. Just so easy and great to play with. Oh, that sounds so fun. All right. So I just wanted to make sure we got, I want <laughs> Thanks. I appreciate that. Not that many people know it. And you were only on the love boat one time. How come you, you should have been on like many, many times? I don't know. Wow. They're lost. The love boat's lost, but that was, but your, <laughs> but your one time on was you crushed it. It was a killer. It was a killer uh, storyline. So fun. Thank you. All right. You have this awesome book. I read it. Loved it. Just you learn so much from about people. So bright lights, prairie dust. You go deep into your background and then Little House and theater was in your blood, though. Theater. And I think now, too. Right. And uh, but in the beginning, theater was your passion. And this is this is sort of how you eventually got into TV on Little House. I love the story. It was like someone just convinced you to do a reading and then that kind of just started the ball rolling. Yeah, then I found my home, you know, I found my passion. And once I found it, I couldn't deny it anymore. And I had to set out to find out how do I do this? And how can I get a chance to do it? And I was so lucky because when I was young, there was this fantastic theater company just across the bay from Berkeley, where I was going to college. And so I joined that theater company and I started learning from the ground up, backstage, props, painting sets, cleaning the bathrooms. I mean, I did it all. And by spring, I was getting parts and it was very encouraging. I was lucky to have people like that to show me high standards and point the way. When the, you did the reading, right? It was looking back in anger, right? Yeah. It was sort of bubbling in you, right? And then someone just kind of convinced you to do the reading. That landed you in a part in the play. And then that sort of, it just kept going from there. You ever think like, oh, what what was, what would have prevented you from not doing that? You know what I mean? Like, Yeah, I was trying not to do it. I was trying to be a very straight arrow student that semester. And not get distracted with plays or writing. And I was trying to get good grades and just see. I wonder if I can do get really good grades if I apply myself instead of fooling around all the time. And then this friend of mine read that scene to me over the phone. And the next day I was at the auditions and they reached right out to me. They saw me coming. I wound up doing the play with Lee J. Cobb's son. And of course, Lee J. Cobb at that time was a legend in theater. So he sort of had genetic roots in the theater and we could talk theater. And oh, my goodness, that was so exciting. That is exciting. First Willie Loman. That's a, that's a pretty big deal, right? So, yeah. all right. So you did that and Vince Cobb and then Stacy Keach was the campus star. You talk about that in the book. Yes, Stacy had been cast in the leading male part, and he was the one who had encouraged me at the audition. But then the administration at the university decided that people shouldn't be allowed to do more than one leading role a semester. So they made this rule, and then Stacy had to step down because he'd already done a lead. And I don't think that rule lasted very long. I think they must have been worried that he wouldn't get his grades or something because he was just on fire, you know. He was just flying through these parts, studying, directing, just really, you know, it was so obvious to all of us that this was an actor. That kind of eventually leads you to Pasadena Playhouse, right? And then mm -hmm. you decide you're quitting school and you're yeah. going full time. Yeah. That's when I went to that theater in San Francisco. Like, how hard of a decision was that? Were your parents, were they like, oh, get an education? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. That's all they wanted for me and my sister. 
get an education, be able to earn a decent living, have a secure life. They were older parents. They had lived through the depression and they did not want insecurity for us. And the day that my mother realized I really was going to quit school and they couldn't talk me out of it, she went to bed crying. Anything but politics or the theater. She was so disappointed. But then, of course, it all worked out. You know, I I realized after a year in the theater that I needed a complete college education, and I wound up getting a Fulbright to study in London, and they began to feel like, oh, well, maybe this is going to work out all right for her then. Karen's got it. Karen's going to do it. (laughs) (laughs) Did you model a lot? You mentioned you, you knew you could just model for money. So was that like... Well, no, I didn't model a lot. I took this class because my dad had said, when you finish Berkeley, you have got to be able to earn a living. But I did not want to take classes that simply prepared me for a job. I wanted to take classes that fascinated me. So I said, all right, I'll take my savings and take this modeling class. And then I can get some jobs doing that so I can continue to do the things that interest me. But as it turned out, once I started the apprenticeship with the theater, there was no time for modeling jobs. I belonged to them. So I had to ask my parents for more help. And they were very generous to give me that help, which in those days, you know, I mean, everything was reasonable and and inexpensive. And for $100 a month, I could live and be an apprentice and be fine. Now, I think it's so hard for young artists because everything's so high. And I guess a lot of them are living in their parents' basements being creative. No shame in living in the basement as long as you have to. I did it until I got there. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. You do what you have to. When you have a dream and you have an ambition and you want to fulfill it. Absolutely. Hey, sorry to interrupt this amazing conversation coming to you from my basement. I do want to thank all of you for your support of the sponsors. When you support the sponsors, you're supporting us here. Classic conversations. And that's how we keep the lights on. And we're back to our amazing conversation with Karen Grassley. I'm about to ask her some important questions about the Beatles. And we're back. In your book, you talk about uh, listening to Sgt. Pepper's Only Hearts Club Band when it first came out. Yeah. I'm a huge Beatles fan. And I just it just fascinated me on a different level to talk to someone who actually listened to it at that moment. It must, what did the Beatles mean to you at that point? And like, what was the impact of this album? I was just curious. <laughs> Sorry. Well, we were a bunch of struggling artists in New York City. We were sitting in my friend's loft apartment that they had built out of a warehouse, really. And uh, she was an actress like me and aspired uh, later to be a director, which she was. Her husband was a composer, very experimental, very modern, very cutting edge. And he is the one who brought the album back to the apartment. And we all sat on the floor and listened. And we listened like you could hear a pin drop. We knew this was something extraordinary. We knew it was historic. And I think a lot of times you go through an experience in life and later you go, oh, that was really something. But we could feel it. That creation just came out and just grabbed us. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Yeah, it was great. All right. Back, all right. Back to the story. Uh, <laughs> so you you land a, a gig on The Guiding Light. This is your first yeah. acting job. Yeah. And then mm-hmm. it was an interesting story because then you you gave that up or you left to do uh, theater again. But there was some regret in there because there was a lot of money you left on the table. Like what was what was going on with you had a reoccurring role in The Guiding Light and then Yeah, and then I left it for this show that we thought was going to Broadway, but it closed out of town. It didn't even make it all the way through its summer tour. And so there I was, you know, unemployed and couldn't help but look at what I would have made if I hadn't taken that job. But 
there was no question between staying on a soap and doing a Broadway show if you're trying to build a career. So I don't feel that my agent gave me bad advice, but I did learn something, which was read the script before you decide, because it was clear that the script needed work. And they were saying, oh, you know, we'll rewrite on the road. Well, you don't know. I mean, that's very, that was very common in those days. They took shows out. They worked and worked and worked to get them right before they brought them to town. There was nothing wrong with that, except it just didn't work out. This is the Gingham Dog? No. Oh, no, no. The no. Gingham Dog was on Broadway. Okay. No, this was a play about George Bernard Shaw. Okay. What what was the name of that one? The one that didn't make it? The Bashful Genius. Uh, Okay, The Bashful Genius. Got it. All right, then The Gingham Dog? Well, I think it probably took almost two years before then, The Gingham Dog. So I had set this deadline for myself that if I didn't have a show in town within two years, that I would go to Hollywood. Because I knew I had to earn a living. I couldn't just, you know, make do with this little cash job and that little house cleaning and all that. I was going to have to work as an actress or do something else. So it was almost two years when I got the gingham dog. And it was like, I get to stay. (laughs) That earned you an award, right? A nomination for Best Newcomer. Oh, yeah. I got nominated for Best Newcomer. That's cool. It was cool. But of course, the show closed in five days. So it didn't give me the lift that I had been hoping for. Well, at least you know. (laughs) (laughs) And then you were going to change your name (laughs) or you changed your name. Yeah. After a lot of hard knocks, I decided, oh, it's probably uh, my name. I need to change my name. That'll do it. And so I created this name, Kay Dillinger. I think that was it. No, it was Gabrielle Tree. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Anyway, once I got Little House, the producer talked me out of keeping that name, you know, and I'm so glad he did because it meant so much to my father and mother, you know, to have my real name up there on the screen. Can you share the story about the audition process for Little House and, and getting the call that they wanted to see you? I, I love that story. Oh, thank you. Yeah, my parents were good storytellers, you know, and so there are a lot of stories in my book because I I see things in story terms. So, yeah, I was a flat broke. I had come to California thinking that I was going to do an independent motion picture. The picture fell through. The people didn't reimburse me for my airline ticket. I was flat. And it depressed me to be flat. I thought, you know, after all this time, I should be able to earn a living in my chosen field. And if I can't, maybe I better get out of it and get a real job. So I was at that low ebb. And I got the call. Well, first, I borrowed money from my mom to get new pictures because my pictures were old. And I took them to the agency. And then it was only about two months after that where the agent called and said, well, they'd like to see you for this new series. It's a pilot. It's called Little House on the Prairie. And I never heard of that. And it's being directed by Michael Landon. And I was like, Michael Landon, let's see, which one of the brothers from Bonanza is he? Because I was out of touch with popular culture. I didn't have a TV in New York, and I had just come back from doing Shakespeare in England. And I knew there were all these brothers, but I didn't know which one was which. And so that was how the appointment got set up. And I went over to the Paramount Studios And when I got there, I was very surprised because there weren't a lot of other women of my type. There weren't a lot of women at all. There was just me. And then they brought me in and I met Mike and oh my God, he's so charismatic. You know, his vibrations just roll off of him. So it's quite impressive. And the uh, producer, Ed Friendly, 
who was very successful. He had been the producer on Laughing. And so they said, tell us a little about yourself, which is what they all ask you. Do they ask you that too? Tell us a little about yourself. And that can be very trying because you think, oh God, how can I make this interesting? But that day, for some reason, I was lighthearted. I told them about all these failures and we all laughed our heads off. And before I got home, the agent was calling saying, go back to Paramount and pick up the scenes they want you to read tomorrow. Karen, he said, I think we can get this. So I picked up the scenes and I studied, studied, studied. They're very short, you know, in television, but still I studied, studied, studied. And then I went over there and I went in and Mike was going to read with me. So they said, sit over there on that couch. And I sat down and he sat down right on the floor, right beside me. I mean, really close, which was a little intimidating, you know. And we read the first scene and he said, good. And we read the second scene. And I'm telling you, Jeff, he leapt off the floor and said, send her to Ward Road, just like that. And I was like, oh, my God, did I just get the job? And then there was this silence. And Ed Friendly goes, Mike, could I speak to you? And I was like, "Uh uh-oh, he doesn't like me for the part. Shoot. Oh, Karen, could you please just wait across the hall in the office over there? And they're very nice. But there's something up, you know, and I'm like, did I get it? Did I not get it? What What's going on? And they didn't tell me what was going on. They invited me back in and they said, thank you very much. Very polite and sent me home. And I was like, what's going on? And when I got home, my fiance was there and he was thrilled. The agent had just called. They wanted me to do a test. I was so let down. I was like, oh, no, I thought I had it. I have to do a test. Oh, no. So Mike, very smart, you know, and he wanted me and he wanted me to look good. So he said, you know, we're not going to try to do a pioneer thing. It'll look ridiculous if you're dressed up in a pioneer outfit. We don't have a set. So we'll just do an interview like we did in the room. And we'll send that to New York. So that'll be the test. That's what we did. And then again, before I got home, the agent was calling and I got it. And I was like, oh, I get to stay in show business. I'm so happy. (laughs) That's so amazing. That's that's so great. I, I remember in the book, you talk about you bought a $40 dress for the audition. Yeah. And you're like, it's an investment. It's an investment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I imagine $40 for a dress was a good amount. And then um, just it was a good investment. Do you say? <laughs> a dress That's would probably be right. worth a lot right now. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I still had it. <laughs> That's a funny idea. Yeah. So it sounds like Michael Landon knew what he wanted. I mean, because the whole the show was... A lot. It was his vision, right? I mean, it was based on the books, but it was guided by his vision of how he wanted to go. He must have just saw you. The chemistry was there. I mean, that was obvious later too. But like, and he's, <laughs> I would guess more Ed Friendly was more like, whoa, 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 whoa. There, we got, there's some paperwork. We got to talk. <laughs> Ed was worried because I had no name and he knew the network was going to give them trouble because the network was the producer which is very unusual, you know, for the network to produce their own shows. But that's the deal that Mike had worked out, he and Ed. You know, you can see from the show, Mike was excellent for casting. I mean, everybody was so well cast in that show. So it really hung together. Oh, yeah. It, yeah, the whole the cast is is amazing. So what came next? Prepping for the the pilot, I would imagine. I rewatched it recently, actually. It, Did you? I rewatched a bunch. It had been a while. And so, and like, I'm re-hooked on it. I was only going to watch a couple episodes. And my wife's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I, I can't stop watching it. I go, I can't believe how well this show holds up. You know, sometimes you watch older shows. You know, I'm like, this is great. I just, I got re-sucked in. The pilot- yeah. 
is interesting because it was uh, it's it's kind of a standalone two hour movie. And then, right. what was it like, kind of just going into that world of the eighteen hundreds? I mean, like, kind of the, the outfits and meeting uh, your new family. Right. Well, I was cast about nine days before we were to start shooting. So there was no time for research. There was no time for preparation. I started to read Little House in the Big Woods, and I brought Little House on the Prairie with me to location, and we just went to work. So I had the script in which I was worried that Carolyn seemed negative, and I thought, well, you know, it's a part, and I need a job. So if she's negative, she's negative. I've got to take this. But when we got there and we went to work, Jeff, the first scene was the little family getting in the wagon to say goodbye to Carolyn's parents and go off into the wilderness. And when I experienced that scene with my little girls, you know, tucked in back and one on my lap and saw the parents and I knew I'd probably never see them again and didn't know where the hell I was going, all of a sudden I just had this regard for Carolyn and her bravery and her loyalty to her husband. And so I bonded with her, you know, and then off we went. And that was a, a really good beginning. It was great. It's, it's, it, is, it is that emotional because you know, you know, you're never going to see him again. You're like, did I, I read, I was reading. And so this popped out at me that was that scene, was that supposed to be in Michigan? Yeah. The little house in the big woods uh, was in Michigan or Wisconsin. Yeah. Michigan. Well, I popped out because I'm in Michigan. So I was like, oh, Michigan. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, when you see your home state. Right. Are you there now? Yes. Well, you know, Laura Ingalls Wilder is just so highly regarded all throughout the Midwest. Well, I mean, all over the country, but especially in the Midwest, where people really appreciate the history that was in her books. Hi, sorry to interrupt. We have to take a quick break for our sponsors. And we're back with our amazing conversation with Karen Grassley. I read uh, also, which I thought was great, is in that scene, there's kind of like a a smile you do. And mm. I was like, it was like a, I'm smiling. I'm, I'm mostly on board type. And like, it sounded like Mike, he, he may have not have noticed it until he was rewatching it. And he was like, well, and he really liked it. I thought that was, that was kind of neat. Just how you can real motion kind of can, can slip in there. It was very helpful because that was the first time that I got a positive affirmation of my work from him. So it was like the beginning of a working relationship where he was saying, yes, go with what you're doing, which builds your confidence. I was, I was reading in your book, when I was rewatching the pilot, I'm like doing the Christmas, prepping for Christmas scene or Christmas scene, and you're plucking the turkey. And I remember thinking to myself, that's a, a real looking prop. And I was like, that, that's, a, that's a hell of a prop team they got there, because that really looked real. <laughs> <laughs> in your book, it was real. And I was like, I'm like, oh, <laughs> interesting. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, man. Like, how much research did they do for authenticity in terms of like, oh, that that candlestick? Yeah, I'm just making something up for a second. But, you know, that candlestick wouldn't have existed yet or, you know, that kind of. Oh, yeah, yeah. they were. Yeah, they were wonderful. Both the set designer, the set decorator and the prop man. They were totally into it to find as authentic stuff as they could, to be as creative as they could with it, to build things when necessary. I mean, I really respected the way they did that. It looks like a lot of attention to detail went into that show, like a lot. Yeah, I think that's one of the reasons it holds up. Yeah. And, and you know, in the storylines too, like dealing with a lot of real stuff. That's another reason I think it holds up because a lot of the themes still kind of can relate to today so strongly. Yeah. In the first year, and I want to hear talk about the contract negotiations. So but before that happened, before that, happened, <laughs> what were the relationships like in the building of the relationships with you and the other, you know, Michael and Melissa and all the other cast members, you know, before and then we'll, we can kind of go into what happened in a second. But what was it like building during that first year 
It was great. We were all working so hard. We were under so much pressure of time, and everyone was giving 100% or more. So there was a tremendous bonding. And, you know, because of the pilot where the family had been on their own, basically, with the wagon and the crew out in the wilderness, we had already formed tight bonds during the pilot. And I love children, so it was easy for me because I authentically was interested in them. (laughs) And then I was so pleased when the supporting players showed up, first Victor French, of course, on the pilot, but then the town people, oh, so wonderful, all of them, dyed-in-the-wool professionals, you know, really good actors, everybody bringing themselves to the table. Uh, For example, uh, the first day that Scotty McGregor and I had a scene together in the mercantile, she said, well, do you want to rehearse? I said, oh, yes. And we ran that thing over and over and over. We both really liked to rehearse so that when we were shooting it, we could just let go, you know, let fly with it. Victor was the same. He loved to rehearse. And he he used to make fun of actors who didn't like to rehearse. But, you know, there is no one way to do it. There is no one right way. The people who do it from their instinct and intuition, they can be just as moving as people like Scotty and Victor who would love to rehearse. Uh, yeah, well, it's good that you found people that of the same mindset. And so that must mm. have been... I think that helped uh, elevate the scenes, I'm sure, to be able to uh, negotiate mm-hmm. the egg price, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> so a couple of things I thought you mentioned, like fun on set. I was, one of the funny stories in your book is that they would play practical jokes and that one of them was that you were digging a ditch. And then maybe you didn't think it was funny at the time, but the um, <laughs> you're like, what the hell? How, how, how much of this ditch do I have to dig? And then you look yeah. up and they're all laughing because they stopped like a while ago and they just let you keep right. going. <laughs> right. That was Mike. He loved to play practical jokes. I think he had gotten in the habit during Bonanza when all those guys played a lot of practical jokes on each other. And then they would have these funny outtakes, you know, and then those funny outtakes would be up there when you look at dailies, and then it would make dailies entertaining. So there were a lot of benefits to the kind of horsing around that he liked to do. The other interesting thing that you mentioned in the book, which I thought was brilliant foresight, was Michael Landon fought to not have ongoing plots so that Mm. it would play better in syndication. That's an interesting thing to think through because it's true. Because then it, it would it would open up a lot in terms of how you could watch the show or digest it or binge it now, which obviously was decades, decades away from people even thinking about that kind of thing. But like that was an interesting, interesting approach, I thought. Yeah, that was an interesting battle that he and Ed broke up over because Michael was convinced that if you started blending longer plot throughout a number of episodes that it would spoil it for syndication. Well, of course, now we know that it wouldn't have mattered. But at the time, he felt very strongly about it and they parted ways. So that was a permanent thing then, that dis- disagreement. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, it was a serious uh, divorce. All right. So Little House is a hit. Season one does great. And then an unfortunate part of the story, which I, I wasn't aware of, and it's it, it's heart-wrenching, is, uh, is you go to negotiate your contract after the first season, and that sort of negatively impacted the rest of the run in a way, right? And mm-hmm. it's so unfortunate that that happened because it, it sounded from what, you, what the story that you tell, you were just kind of going through, you know, based on the information that was given to you, this is what happens if it's mm-hmm. a hit, you renegotiate. And then Michael didn't really want to talk about it. So, yeah, I don't want to dwell on this story, but I guess I knew that I might never do another television series. It wasn't my first love to be on a television series. So I knew this was my one opportunity to build some security. And I knew that actors on top 10 shows 
got paid a lot more than what I was getting paid. And so I stuck to my guns. And that was a very unpopular choice. So Mike gave me a really, really hard time. And eventually, I did win. I got a good contract. I got good residuals, all of which has made it possible for me, you know, now in my later years to write a book, to not be scraping for the next commercial, to have a a life more like what I choose, to go to Ontario as I did this summer and do a play was fantastic, you know, not that far from where you are, Jeff. I flew into Detroit and went to across the river to Petrolia and did this um, production of On Golden Pond. And it was just a thrill. Oh, that's awesome. And I'm sorry. Next time you'll call, we'll do lunch. I'll come see the play. Boom. Yeah, you could have come. It would have been so neat. All right. Well, I'm glad you stuck to your guns and it paid off and you earned it. You deserved it. All right. Let's focus. Let's refocus then. And let's talk about Let's talk about Matter of Faith. There's a couple episodes that I know mm-hmm. where you shine. I mean, you always shine, but you know what I mean? Like like Ma-centric. I rewatched Matter of Faith recently because I, I heard you talking about it. So I wanted to kind of, such a great episode. So great. And then, and then the other one that you talk about a lot, which was an opportunity, was the award where Michael Landon, unfortunately, had oh, spinal yeah. meningitis and they rewrote it for you and, and gave you this, this awesome uh, enhanced role in that one. I know it was important to you to to have episodes where your character could shine for many reasons. In a matter of faith, like you know, if, when you reflect on that, it's like, what was it like when a show was focused on you? You know, just so amazing. Well, I just love challenges. So I love that in this episode, I would have this big arc, being cheerful, working hard making pies, and then having this injury, which would become really life-threatening. And so it had a lot of variety in it. It had a lot of physicality in it. And I like that. Sometimes when you're on television, it's a little like being on Zoom. Oh, you feel like you're just in this little frame and there's not a lot of physical life. So I loved that about it really gave me a chance to expand in space and in emotion. And I have to say that when the first cut was in on that, Mike wasn't happy with it. And he he came to me, said, well, we need to reshoot some of that. He showed it to me and I saw what he meant that somehow we had just not gotten the, the depth of this woman's suffering. And so we reshot a lot of it and uh, tried to deepen it. And from what other people say, I think we succeeded because people still talk about that episode a lot. <laughs> and then, of course, she lives, which is great. Yeah. <laughs> it is a great episode. It's funny, like, you know, now, you, you know, for, for those that may not recall, just a little scratch, a little loose wire on the, on the uh, buggy, was it? Uh, yeah, on the wagon. Wagon, wagon. And, uh, you know, nowadays you throw a little Neospore on, Neospore on, <laughs> and you move on with your life. You know, but this is the 1800s. I, this is different. You know, so it's like, that's a whole different world. I, it's it's interesting like that. And then I got to say, you know, there's a, there's a scene where they're picking up the pies where I'm feeling horrible because you're like on the ground and you're like, you know, <laughs> and then part of me is like, oh my God, those are the best looking pies I've ever seen. I'm like, I'm starving now. It was like, it was such a... Uh, <laughs> Trivia, you don't have to remember, but I, I have the answer. Is uh, That's so funny. She, you know, she was famous for her pies, which was the whole reason that she was staying home, was to make those pies because it was going to make money for the church. <laughs> yep, yep. They were building like a new church or something. And they hadn't raised enough. Do you remember how much the pies made? No. Okay. I, I don't remember. They, they were overjoyed because they pretty much almost pulled in $4. <laughs> but $4... But it's like, it's funny in context because there were scenes where like, how much for the book or how much for, you know, it's 50 cents for that book or a penny for a bag of licorice. And, you know, so it's like $4, you know, you're hearing it today. You're like $4, you can't get a slice of pie for $4, but back then $4, you you probably built the whole church yourself. (laughs) 
it was a lot of uh, faith, though. I know it was called Matter of Faith, but I mean, in the book, you turn to the Bible and it helps you get through it. And Melissa Gilbert and the praying and for you to live and it's a God let you live. And that was a nice theme. It was, you know, through a lot of, of episodes, you know, just how important religion was. Yes, it's interesting. You know, Mike wasn't raised in a religious family, but he had this strong feeling for faith for something beyond us that mattered and that cared. I think it's very reassuring. Like that's one of the reasons so many people were watching it during the pandemic, you know, because people needed reassurance. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it 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 does draw on that and kind of reaffirm faith. It's, it's so all the episodes I re- watched had that as part of it in one way or another. I think uh, who's a, a, Vic, a Victor's character, Mr. Edwards was dating. Mm-hmm. I, I'm horrible with names. So was dating they didn't, and then said he didn't believe in church or didn't go to church. And then mm-hmm. uh, the woman that he was falling for was going to dump him for it. <laughs> so he had a change of heart and, and ended up going. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> As would I have. All right, the award episode where the bar, uh, Mary sets the barn on fire and you save the day. You could, but how scary was it on the set with Michael with spinal meningitis? I mean, that was damn serious, right? I mean, oof. Yeah, I got a phone call on the weekend from the producer, which he, he never called me at home. There was no reason to. And here he was calling on the weekend and he said, Michael has spinal meningitis. He's in the hospital. He's packed in ice. And we're rewriting the award for you. We're sending over the pages as soon as we get them. So we were all on edge while we were shooting that until we knew that Mike was out of danger, which was maybe somewhere in the middle of the week or toward the end of the week. It's hard for me to remember. All of that fed into... The atmosphere on the set when Mary starts that fire and Ma gets so angry and punishes her harder than she would have normally. And I have to say that working with fire, I found very disturbing. I'm like, I'm still an animal and running near fire and running into fire, my whole system just starts alarm bells. It happened on the pilot, too, when there was a fire on the cabin. And I just kind of felt very frantic, just like the horses. Fire's scary. I mean, because it's, you can control it, maybe. You know, I mean, like a baby, people, that, but I mean, fire is fire. It has a, yeah. a life of its own when it comes to fire. So I can, I can understand that 100%. That was a great episode as well. All great. But those are the... The two that I thought we could focus on. So that was awesome. And then um, the other thing of, I think, huge note is uh, is Battered. Oh, yeah. That is uh, a movie of the week that you wrote, co-wrote, about focusing on uh, bringing domestic violence to light to, to many people. And this is in the 70s. And that was, can you talk about like what drove you to, what kind of focused you in on that particular topic and then how you got this to light because this was this was a big deal to to bring this these storylines to the, the mass public. Thank you. Because Mike was producer, director, star, I was the person that went out on the road the children couldn't go to promote the show every season. I would go from city to city and talk about the show and show clips from the upcoming season. And one year when I got to Fort Worth, I was introduced to a journalist who had just done this original research on domestic violence. And uh, we had a long talk. And it was so much more interesting to me than the usual interview about television today, you know. So she really started telling me what the truth of the situation was, which I didn't know. I mean, I just had all kinds of assumptions about wife beating, that it only happened to poor people, that it only happened to uneducated people, that it probably only happened to people who drank. 
And this was all nonsense. So she straightened me out. And then she sent me her articles, which, you know, in those days, you had to make a copy and then put it in an envelope and then send it through the mail. So I got them when I got home. And I took those articles to my partner. She and I had been looking for a subject to write a movie of the week about. And right away, she agreed, this is it. This is what we must do. And so we began our work. And we were so lucky because there was a shelter for battered women in Pasadena. So it was only an hour or so in those days with the traffic. Now, who knows how long to get there and be able to talk to experts and to the women who'd been through this. So we did a lot of original research ourselves, and we started writing on the hiatus, and we would just write, write, write whenever we could get together, you know, depending on my shooting schedule. And she was very patient knowing that I had that shooting schedule, but it gave us the opening to NBC. So we took this to a producer and then all together we took it to NBC. It's great that you were using your star power to bring something so important to shine light on it. Thank you. It, it was so rewarding to be able to do that. And at that time, this was completely under covers, you know, I mean, it was just not known about. There were only two shelters in all of the United States. And our film became a training film in upstate New York for a police department because domestic violence is one of the most dangerous situations for police. And who, who would have guessed that, right? Right. You think it's out on the street with criminals, but no, it's domestic violence. And then we were asked to help to lobby for House of Representatives to pass legislation to support shelters all over this country. So it was so rewarding to be able to participate that way. Yeah, that shelters in California, I think, went from one to 20, I read. And then, uh, yeah, you went to D.C. You, there was a bill passed, you know, led to other movies like The Burning Bed, starring Farrah Fawcett, who you beat in tennis at the Battle of the Network Stars. Quick side note. <laughs> the Battle of the Network Stars. That was so fun. So fun. You know what else was so fun? Talking to you. I, I know I've, I've used up uh, all our time. Can you, uh, all this time has gone by. It's oh, good. It's so fun. I, uh, I can't thank you enough. This was so great. I, I appreciate you sharing stories with me and everyone who wants to hear even more amazing stories. Bright Lights Prairie Dust is Karen's book and it is has a thousand more stories. It's a great read. I highly recommend it. Thank you. Besides Karen Grassley.net, where do you hang out on social media? Oh, uh, Instagram and Facebook. Everyone go to Karen Grassley.net. There's a nice little links right there to all of uh, Karen's accounts so you can hang out with her online. Karen, thank you so much. This was so amazing. I real honor. I can't thank you enough. Oh, thank you, Jeff. Thank you for being so well prepared and uh, enthusiastic about my work. I really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. I, <laughs> it's what I do. I love it. <laughs> it's always fun when you get to talk to someone as awesome as you. All right. How amazing was Karen Grassley? little homework for you. One, check out her book, Bright Lights, Prairie Dust. It's a great book. And also, isn't it time you rediscovered and rewatched The Little House on the Prairie? It's on freebie. It's via Amazon. You can watch it for free. They got some ads in there, but it's worth it. I loved all those stories from Karen. It's always great to hear the backstory, the story behind the story before someone becomes super iconically famous in terms of how you know them. So I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. But with the interview over, it can only mean one thing. That's right. It's time for another trending hashtag from the family of hashtags at Hashtag Roundup. Follow us on Twitter at Hashtag Roundup. Download the free, always free, doesn't cost a penny app from the Google Play Store or iTunes App Store. Tweet along with us and one day one of your tweets may show up on a future episode of Classic Conversations. Fame and fortune await you. 
All right, today's hashtag is a special one. We're going way back. We're going back like four years on Twitter to hashtag take a TV show back to the 1800s. I thought this was awesomely relevant. Little House on the Prairie takes place in the 1800s and it's a classic TV show. So let's take any TV show back to the 1800s and see what happens with hashtag take a TV show back to the 1800s from Brainwave Bonanza, a legendary game from the archives of hashtag roundup. Hashtag take a TV show back to the 1800s, the ultimate 1800 TV show mashup game tweet your own tag us at jeff dewaskin show we'll show you some twitter love in the meantime here's some hashtag take a tv show back to the 1800s tweets for inspiration outlaw and order saved by alexander graham bell these are excellent hashtag take a tv show back to the 1800s tweets will and say grace who wants to marry a prospector full outhouse better telegraph Saul. Fantasy Ellis Island. The boat, the boat. Pin my boogie. Stagecoach. These are awesome. Hashtag take a TV show back to the 1800s tweets, but we're not done yet. Sabrina, the teenage witch hunt. Blacksmithish. The Mary Todd Lincoln Moore show. And our final. Hashtag take a TV show back to the 1800s tweet. Little playing house on the prairie. Oh, you saw it coming. All right. Those are awesome. Tweet your own. Also, go find these tweets that I just read retweeted at Jeff Jawaskin Show. Show them some Twitter love. Well, with the hashtag over and the interview over, that can only mean one thing. That's right. Episode 166 has come to an end. Can't believe it either. I want to thank my special guest, Karen Grassley. And of course, I want to thank all of you for coming back week after week. It means the world to me. And I'll see you next time. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Classic Conversations. If you like what you heard, don't be shy and give us a follow on your favorite podcast app. Also, why not go ahead and tell all your friends about the show? You strike us as the kind of person that people listen to. Thanks in advance for spreading the word, and we'll catch you next time on Classic Conversations. Classic Conversations.